0: Welcome to yet another episode of The Eater Upsell, a podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network on which I, Helen Rosner, and my co-host Greg Morabito, who's right over there, talk to the most interesting people in the world. Every single Monday morning, you will sign into your podcast listening device to find this very episode waiting for you. It's me and Greg and someone really, really interesting with something interesting to say about the world of food, restaurants, and the culture that surrounds all of that. On today's episode, Greg and I are talking with John T. Edge, the director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is part of the University of Mississippi, and author of the brand new book, The Potlicker Papers, A Culinary History of the Modern South. It's a pretty incredible book. John T. is a pretty incredible dude. And if I say so myself, Greg and I have a pretty incredible conversation with him. But first... I want to check in with you, Greg. How's it going?
1: Hey, Helen. I'm doing good. How are you doing this this afternoon? It's
0: beautiful. It's a beautiful day in this windowless podcast recording studio.
1: I know. Such a lovely view, right?
0: Love it. The walls, the soundproofing.
1: Hey, Helen, you know, uh, my beat, which is pop culture and kind of viral things for Eater, inevitably I end up covering some kind of weird things. And there was a thing this week that I wrote about, which just I don't quite understand it. And that is there is this shoe that looks like a slice of pizza. Have you seen this? I
0: have. This is part of this Adidas 50 States 50 Shoes thing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Adidas and Refinery29, they made these shoes for charity. They're one-off shoes, and each shoe represents each state. And each shoe has a different theme, and and some of them are food-themed. And the one for New Jersey has like a pizza theme. And for some reason, people just really love this shoe. Uh, and I was just kind of trying to parse through what why that is and why people got so excited about a shoe that looks like a slice of combination pizza with pepperoni on top. Well, That's like, should, you know, $600. It's an
0: amazing shoe. And I feel like actually, like, just to be clear, there have probably been pizza shoes before where it's like a shoe and it like the sole is the crust and the whatever this shoe like literally has a slice of pizza on it like as a as a yes. physical addition to the body of the like your standard sneaker there is made out of sneaker materials a triangular slice of pizza attached to the shoe
1: it's got a little shoe ta- like uh yeah like a shoe sort of a big tassel
0: also i have another question which is i why is New Jersey being represented by pizza? I, New Jersey's like the seventh or eighth state I would think of if I had to think of pizza states.
1: I, I guess I thought that was a little strange, too. Um, they didn't really offer any explanation. I mean, that, that was kind of the weird thing about this partnership is that the, this, the, what they chose for each state was sometimes obvious, like Georgia's looked like a peach.
0: Are they all food?
1: But- no, but about six out of the fifty are foods. Like uh, I think that the one from like South Carolina, it's like shrimp and grits.
0: There's a shrimp and, and grits sneaker.
1: Yeah, there's a shrimp. shrimp I'll I'll just uh, okay. So there was shrimp and grits. Uh, Wisconsin was cheese, obviously. Uh, Tennessee was a Memphis style barbecue shoe, which wow. looks great. It has a little ham on the on the on the uh, toe there. But
0: also, I imagine that's pretty controversial. Like if you're a person from one of the non-Tennessee. Barbecue states like North Carolina mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or Texas. Maybe you're like, why the fuck is their barbecue being celebrated in sneaker form when ours is also legitimate? Sometimes the
1: choices of of what the shoes were decorated seems kind of arbitrary, and also this is sort of some weird charity thing. So I kind of feel like, well, it's just kind of some weird, you know, stunt that they're doing, and, but and that's.
0: Let's get back to pizza representing New Jersey, which right. makes no sense. Right. Like, first of all, obviously New York, Connecticut. Rhode Island, California, Illinois, all vastly more important pizza states than New Jersey. Is that,
1: is that true though? I mean, doesn't New Jersey have like the oldest pizza? Isn't there some bakery or something in like uh, Hoboken or somewhere that's like the oldest pizzeria? That that's kind of that's what I thought of when I saw that, but I could be.
0: Yeah, but uh, like if know. you ask any, maybe I don't know. You know what? I used to live in Hoboken, and I have no idea. But like if you if you pulled Americans family feud style and you're like a hundred we asked a hundred people what state you think of when I say the word pizza I guarantee you like survey says nothing for New Jersey like and if you're gonna I mean New Jersey a hot dog state for sure totally a hot dog
1: place I would be like um whatever uh edible form of corruption there is
0: totally just like a shoe shaped like a mayor who went to jail Right, or whatever, governor um, or what i mean you know, yeah yeah
1: bridge gate between a bun
0: or a, a rat or yes. mozzarella cheese yep. or sliders right. sliders new jersey is is the birthplace of the of the slider like the steamed oh, yeah, micro diner the little white totally, manna totally. like all of that stuff there's so much more to say about new jersey than pizza on a sneaker and I mean, it's a super cool shoe. It's just and, and New Jersey has its own thing going on, and that's cool too. But like the Venn diagram of New Jersey and thematic sneaker does not really, in my conception of the universe, include pizza.
1: No, no. And further complicating things, uh, I, I, okay. The oldest pizzeria in New Jersey was not in Hoboken. You know your your former hometown, and not your hometown, but I know you, you spent some time there but rather this place called Papa's Tomato Pies in Trenton. Uh, And a tomato pie is is a little bit different than a pizza as we know it. Did you just Google Um, that?
0: I don't believe I, you that you knew that offhand.
1: No, no. I Googled it. So, Googled But that, that yeah. proves our
0: point, right? Is that like right. you don't know that New Jersey is a pizza state unless you research it and then you say the name of a place that is probably really important and probably super iconic and people who live near it and grew up near it and who are big, big pizza fans have heard of it. But for the majority of the pizza-consuming public, like if you say shrimp and grits, I'm not going to think New Jersey. If you say no. Memphis-style barbecue, I'm not going to think New Jersey. Why does New Jersey get pizza?
1: You know, this is maybe a question we should pose to our readers out there. If there's anyone in listeners, New Jersey, that's our listening
0: listeners.
1: To this, oh my God. <laughs> this is probably a question that we should pose to our listeners out there. If there's anyone listening in New Jersey who understands why New Jersey should get the pizza shoe above New York or or any other state for that Connecticut, matter, Connecticut,
0: Rhode Island, Illinois, California. Arizona, even right, like pizza and yeah, Ari- Bianco Arizona is the
1: best. Would have been a cool choice. That would have
0: been amazing. But like New yeah. Jersey is not the pizza state. It's just not.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, but you know, may, may prove us wrong. I'm, I'm ready to. I'm ready to learn more. But if you know why that that shoe should belong to New Jersey, then drop us an email at uh, upsell at eater.com.
0: But speaking of thematic shoes, I'm I'm about to drop just an extraordinary segue on all of us. You know who should have those shrimp and grits shoes, Greg? Uh, well, I would assume it would be somebody from the South,
1: right? Heck yeah.
0: And you know who is right here in the Eater Upsell studio to talk with us about the South and his new book, The Potlicker Papers? I think I know. It's John T. Edge, the head of the Southern John Foodways T- Alliance. and John T. Edge. Uh, one of America's leading scholars on Southern food, the South itself, and the way that the two have co-formed their own identities and existences. Before we do, a quick reminder. As always, please subscribe. Please give us a five-star rating. Please tell your friends and loved ones to also listen to The Eater Upsell. And as Greg mentioned, you can drop us a line if you ever think that we're wrong or if you think that we're right or if you're things you want us to talk about. Is there anything I'm forgetting? I don't think so. I think I hit all of the big asks. Let's just talk to John T. Edge. <laughs> So, so John T. Edge, your new book, is called The Potlicker Papers. Potlicker is an interesting word. Uh-huh. It, it took me a long time to process the fact that I am saying... The liquor that's in the pot, like like alcohol-style liquor, but it's spelled phonetically.
2: Yeah, and it, it's almost like, you know, if you think about alcohol as a product of distillation, cooking a pot of greens is its own distillation process. Um, cooking a pot of greens down to its essence, to the leavings at the bottom of the pot, the broth at the bottom of the pot. Um, And that's kind of a metaphor for writing a social history of the South over 60 years. Like, what do you boil down? What do you get? Um, What remains? Um, What's indivisible, kind of? Um, And it's also substantive, too. I mean, you know, there's a subversive beauty in the knowledge that when you cook a pot of greens, um, the... Nutrients actually reside in the broth, not in the greens. And that knowledge, um, and that the those nutrients, sustained working class black and white, um, and especially sustained enslaved blacks, in a moment when the masters, um, the slave masters, would keep the greens and deign to to hand over the the broth, the pot liquor, to the enslaved. So that knowledge, that broth is has its has a kind of subversive beauty to it, I think.
0: It serves as a, a pretty sustained metaphor Ooh. for the...
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a heavy idea. Yeah. You know, this
0: idea that that actually all of the, the richness and the quality is is the stuff that those foolish slave-owning whites discarded. <laughs> so, so the subtitle of your book is A Food History of the Modern South. There <laughs> is so much to unpack in there. I mean, yep. you could write a book about it.
2: Yeah, and... You know, it's specifically a food history of the modern South as opposed to a history of Southern food. I'm disinterested in the latter and deeply interested in the former.
0: What's the difference between a food history and a history of food?
2: A history of food would be how did fried chicken come to be? And, um, you know, why do we love barbecue? And... um, you know, it would be about food. I use food, I think, I hope, I try to use food as a way to understand people and place. And my particular people are Southerners and my place is the American South. And I think if you look closely at this region and use food as almost, you know, blinders to apprehend this region, you can grasp a lot of the social history of it. You make sense of all the conflicts that have, that have ruined my place and also inspired my people. So, it's, it's, to me, that's different, and it's not even being playful with language. It's really a different way of thinking.
0: Do you think of this as an academic book?
2: Nah. There's curse words in here.
0: There's curse words <laughs> in academia.
2: Um, there are. But, I mean, this is not—this book has in notes. Um, but even though I call this a food history, nowhere in here do I call myself an historian. You know, I am an observer of the South who has an academic degree in Southern Studies, but I am not— You know, I don't intend to inhabit um, the ivory tower of academe. This book has a point of view. This book does not, this book takes a position. Um, You know, historians tell the truth as they see it. I'm taking a position here with this book and describing an arc, forcing an arc. Um, I use academic techniques, but it's not an academic book.
1: Is there any degree of like setting the record straight that you feel very, you know, passionate about, like in particular, like if there's like one
2: takeaway from this book? That is the takeaway for this book (laughs) for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a white son of the South, born in the home of a Confederate brigadier general. There was a you know, there was an historical marker out front of my house um, that paid homage to this Confederate Brigadier General as if he were a hero um, in both the reality of his life and the reality of Southern history. We know that not to be true. And if you don't know it not to be true, we can talk later. Um, (laughs) But all those things to say, like, you know, this whole book is my attempt to kind of pay down debt of pleasure and sustenance that we owe to to cooks, to farmers, to artisans whose names are lost to history, and whom we devalue—women, people of color who have often been devalued—and to help people recognize that these problems and these issues identified in the South are actually American problems and issues. Um, yeah, that's the whole gig for me.
0: That's John Edgerton's line, right? <laughs> Hell the, yeah. the debt to paying down the debt to pleasure.
2: I mean, that this book is very much um, my. Somewhat humble attempt um, to to pay homage to him and what he did for me.
0: You know, it's impossible. I think in any illuminated conversation about America to not talk about race, and particularly when well, it comes maybe to racism. This. Well, yeah, race and and racism. Yeah. Um, and the Potlicker Papers as a book serves in many respects as as an analysis and dissection of the way that people of various groups tried to suppress one another and tried to fight back against their suppression.
2: And and a recognition that in that fight back against suppression, oppression, food is a tool, food is power, and so many marginalized Southerners, marginalized Americans used it as a way to fight back.
0: When you got interested in the South as an academic concept and found yourself moving towards the food as the lens that you wanted to use, did you know that? that was going to wind up moving you into a position of having a scholarly perspective on issues of race and ethnicity and class and things like that? Or did you think it was going to be fried chicken?
2: No, it went the other way. I went back to school to get my master's degree in Southern Studies with an interest in racism and its imprint on the South and found food through that work. Um, So it was always going to be about race and racism. I came to understand the imprint of class later Um, and gender inequity later and now um, you know issues of ethnicity and identity later but the first thing that drove me as a white son of the south trying to reckon with the fact that i love the american south and really pissed off at the american south at the same time it was race and racism first and foremost
0: is the thing that you love and the thing that you're pissed off at the same thing
2: it's the same people yeah Um, you know, it's easy to, um, isolate, um, white conservative Southerners is the problem. Um, And it's easy to pillory them and perhaps unfair to pillory them. One of the people who inspired me throughout my career has inspired me and he passed not long before John Edgerton was Will Campbell, the renegade bootleg Baptist preacher from South Mississippi who preached and worked so much of his life in in Nashville, um, who basically has this epiphany by way of a prod from John Lewis during the movement who says, why don't you go back work with your own people Um, why don't you work with white working class folk as well it's a big challenge ahead um in that
0: there's a a chapter in the book where you talk about the the hippie back to the landers who kind of came to tennessee Mm -hmm. from san francisco and you use a phrase to refer to them that really jumped out at me and i had it in my head the whole time i was reading the whole rest of the book which is that they were purposeful southerners yeah which seems like a very unique position relative to pretty much every other group that you talk about who's either arrived in the South via, you know, slavery or has come to the South as refugees or, you know, migrants who are searching for a better lives. It was an intentional decision by a group of relatively privileged white people to move to the south and choose southernness,
2: and and to i mean that moment is fascinating so the year is 1971 um and stephen gaskin um leads the the bangled and bell-bottomed faithful out of hate asbury in san francisco for tennessee um, because they see threat in the the drugs and the crime of the hate, and they see promise in green pastures and agriculture, the back to the land movement. This is kind of the ultimate um, personification of it. Um, And it's interesting to me that this happens so quickly. You think about the 1960s, we can recognize quickly, the the South is a place to quit. Like, you get the hell out of there. Um, But how quickly people began to reclaim it and see new value in it, see value in agriculture, see value in traditional ways. And the beautiful thing about the people who settled the farm in Summertown, Tennessee, is that they saw value in those traditional ways, in those old guard, white, working class folk. Um, They embraced them as a manner of tribute and as a way to learn.
0: Is that similar to the kind of cultural renaissance of the South now where the rest of the country sort of fetishizes this notion of like hand-hewn, artisanal, noble, minimalist?
2: They're linked. Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, th- there is there is a, a—you know, if you think about a cheap previous generation that might have driven South to, um, to sit at the foot of an aged bluesman and listen to her or him hammer out a tune— now those kids are leaving Brown or Princeton or whatever it might be, and they're traveling south to sit at the feet of an aged pitmaster, and and those those um, recognitions, new recognitions of value in those enterprise and those craft, um, leveraged well, can be uh, you know can be uh, a positive effect. Um, It's not always leveraged well. It sometimes can be about fetishization and exotification, and the South has both done that to itself and had that done to itself for a long time.
0: There's a a Sofia Coppola movie that's coming out pretty soon, and she has been raising some hackles by... uh, Referring, it's called the Beguiled. It's a remake of that classic Clint Eastwood movie. That's about a bunch of women, sort of left behind in the Civil War, alone in the house.
2: Sweet Jesus, I'm so tired of Civil War shit. (laughs) Well, she she (laughs)
0: um she keeps referring to the South as exotic. She there's a you know she's saying it was so amazing to be in the South. It's so exotic to me.
2: I think America wants to make the South into an exotic place so that America doesn't have to face down its ills. Like so you you sequester um, the ills of America and the American South and you puzzle over them over here and look at the exotica. And that kind of chaps me.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, uh, one context that I kind of understand that is is for a number of years I covered, you know, New York restaurants for Eater. Right. And it was like always this parade of southern restaurants that would open as basically theme restaurants, even if they kind of like – the same sort of like heritage grains and blah, blah, blah. And um, I just thought they never worked. Only the very few of them ever seemed to actually make any sort of long lasting connection or do it in a way that didn't seem anything other than like a version of like the Hard Rock Cafe or something like right. that, you know? Um, do you... Do you do, have you sort of seen that happening across the country, like the kind of theme, modern southern theme
2: restaurant? I mean, you're ultimately talking about dishonest restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. restaurants that are trend surfing. Um, there's, a, there's a long history of those, and Helen's smiling because I think she knows what I'm about to say. But there's a long history of those sorts of restaurants in the American South that arose in the late 1960s as almost backlash to the civil rights movement. And you see restaurants that would mount a Confederate cannon on the awning and offer you stakes that are Lincolnized or Shermanized or stonewalled. This this kind of pageantry of the Old South repackaged for a more modern era and you know the south has long sold its mythos and to varying degrees now others sell the mythos of the south oftentimes misguided sometimes with great intent and and execution
0: those sort of southern theme restaurants like Uh the, the ones you're you're mentioning i mean it sounds like the theme is just sort of racism we miss it yeah. In or, a sense. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe in the minds of the people who are putting the theme together, it's not explicitly, gosh, we miss racism. It's, you know, gosh, we miss when nobody pointed out that we
2: were racist. Were <laughs> right. But
0: But there, there has been, you know, the, the modern South, um, as it has existed outside of the region itself, you know, the way it has come to New York and come to San Francisco and come to Los Angeles, has in many ways— tried to divorce itself entirely from the bloody history
2: right i mean the 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 issues with some of these new southern restaurants are interpreting the south um, is that if you're going to work in the broad rubric of southern cultural outputs if you're going to sing southern music if you're going to um you know if you're going to craft southern food you've got to have a Handle on the history that undergirds it, because it's that history you're selling as much as that food. I mean, you're selling the narratives embedded in that food. And if you, the the aspiring restaurateur, begin throwing around words like Dixie and you begin throwing around words like plantation, um, and you don't know what it is you're messing with, you're ready for a downfall. And I'm willing to bring it to you. You know, I, I just think. Like, <laughs> um, this is a tragic place from which I hail with a troubling and ultimately triumphant history. If you want to trade in, in, in the tropes of my place, please dig in and understand my place a little.
1: Has anyone ever like reached out to you to consult on a, a, a southern restaurant
2: outside of uh, the south? No, um, and uh, you know I don't think I'd be good at that. I, I care too much. I mean, commerce may re- might require what it is that I want out of them, but I certainly have lots of friends in this world. I mean, I think about what what Alex Young and Ari Weinswag have done with Zingerman's Roadhouse in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You know, it is not a Southern restaurant, but they interpret the South and tell stories about the South beautifully um, and respectfully. Um, and it's not a theme restaurant; it is an American restaurant. If you're going to cook American food. You're going to deal with Southern vernacular.
0: What about the world of the South outside of the vast history and shadow of its relationship to slavery? I think, I'm think i thinking specifically of a restaurant like Shia in New uh-huh. Orleans, yeah. which is a, an Israeli-inspired Middle Eastern restaurant in a city that has its own extraordinarily particular version of— Cuisine within the broader Southern vernacular, and it's a wonderful restaurant. It's a great I was restaurant. Just and there it last week has yeah. been hailed and celebrated and awarded, be. and it casts such an incredibly sharp contrast into this question of what is Southern food? Is anything served in the South Southern food?
2: Um, that modifier "Southern" applied to food um, is inexact and not always. Um, uh, uh, the best modifier to apply. I mean, what I think about a restaurant like Shia is I think Shia um, succeeds because it um, well, because Alon is brilliant and so is Zach and so are the people who work the line. Um, they remind me that the South has never been a cultural isolate. Um, the South has long been a place of global commerce. New Orleans, a port city, um, a deeply important port city, has always been a place of new arrivals and departures. A deeply Jewish place as well as a deeply Catholic place. Like, you know, so I think of Shia as part of a modern Southern narrative, and my modern Southern narrative accommodates Shia um, not only because I love the pita and. The <laughs> Um, (laughs) and the Baba Ganoush, but because that narrative reflects the South, I know. I got to go there.
1: We've had, I feel like we've ended up talking about this several times. You went there, right? I did. Yeah. It's very good.
0: It's a delightful restaurant.
2: I had Butcher, I went to Butcher and Bee in Charleston last week and it's, you know, the connections between those two restaurants kind of that are inspired by the Middle East are modern, fresh, um, and, belong in part of, you know, in, in our port city restaurants mm-hmm. are fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a question that I feel like we come back to very frequently. I think we come back to it sort of obliquely when we talk about the globalization of the food world, that there are, you know, cuisines and heritages and foodways that arise out of regionalism and history and, you know, the specifics of the soil quality and what you can grow. But now there's you know, a Korean taco place on every corner and what does it mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. How do we find ourselves in a place where increasingly everything is everywhere?
2: And and I think, you know, one of the things I embrace and kind of readily so and, and kind of tips me over into the kind of activist or purposefully progressive writer is I embrace that kind of future tense multicultural South. In, in part because I find it an, an, an exciting eating frontier, in part because... I know the ills of not embracing change. You know, the South, um, by either intent or by mischaracterization from outside, or, or purposeful characterization from inside, has been thought to be a bulwark of tradition. Um, and in fact, the thing that's really that I took away from my own book, if I can say something like that without sounding a horrible uh, egoist, that, absolutely, yeah, um, yeah, is, <laughs> you, you learn were on something, a journey, you know, you know? <laughs> yeah about it is like this book starts in 55 and ends in 2015. The pace of change in the South over that span of time is just mind boggling. Like if you think if you think the South is this place of tradition and old times there are not forgotten, Pepe, that it's just not the case. If you just look at the span of time I've chosen. Amazing progress. Yes, backsliding. Um, And yet the arc, as Dr. King would have it, is long and it bends towards justice. It bends towards inclusiveness. and, And this place has been transformed over the time I wrote. Do
0: you think that the South has changed at a pace or in a way that is different from the rate of change elsewhere? Yeah. Why do you more think that is? It?
2: Because we had more horrors to correct. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, you know, w- you know, you, we all know that the institution of slavery was not solely Southern. It was a national institution and embraced across At least the Eastern Shore for a good part of our nation's history. Um, And yet, if you live in the American South, you can't even parse that out. You have to accept um, that the institutions and wealth. Of the American South were built on slavery, Um, and you know if you want to apprehend Southern food and you fall in love with Hoppin John, you can't deny the role of enslaved peoples in the rice trade and the knowledge and expertise they bring to that. Like it's just you can't deny the role of slavery in the imprint of racism on our region you may be able to sitting here in new york city um and i'm not saying you would or, or you would but other people might be able to explain that a way that outside the bounds of the south you can't where i live
0: so when you're not um on a book tour promoting the potlicker papers uh-huh. you are the director of the southern foodways alliance at the university of mississippi tell us about the sfa sure i'm a member Are you a member, Greg?
1: No, but I've always been um, uh, very curious about this organization, specifically for the fact that um, all the members of it are really ride or die. It seems to provoke really great conversations that end up becoming national conversations. And also, it seems unique in that it's a very intimate, um, it seems like an intimate organization. And that is rare for kind of these sort of, um, you know, groups that have conferences and stuff like that, you know, after almost 20 years, right? Yeah.
0: Did you pay him to say all that? That was I don't know, but
1: I'd pay you to say it again. Uh, No, no. Well, I have a tremendous amount of respect as a spectator and someone who ends up reading about it and reading the things that kind of come out about it, if not anyone who's ever been to the symposium.
2: I mean, I really (laughs) genuinely appreciate that read because that's certainly our intent. Um, You know, the SFA is now almost 20 years old, um, and we began our work with you know, this burden we've been talking about top of mind or heavy on shoulder, um, this notion that the South is a broken place and that one possibility for reconciliation for progressive future for the South might be in fields, at kitchens, at tables. Um, and so now the SFA does work that links back to Edgerton's charge of paying down a debt of pleasure. So, you know through film we've made a little over a hundred films and many of them through a partnership with Eater um, show up on y'all's network. They're, um, they're
1: very, very nicely done films. I mean, we, you know.
2: Well, it's, you know, what we've done, I think, and hope over time is our definition of what the South is and who belongs to this place is broadened. You know, I mentioned racism in its imprint was the beginning. You know, one of my favorite films we've made in the last few years was about Lawrence and Doja, who's a car parker, a valet guy in Atlanta. It's a a film called Lawrence of Atlanta, um, mm-hmm. and about the way he, a uh, first-generation immigrant, expresses hospitality and is, in essence, the best front-of-the-house person in Atlanta who just happens to be working the parking lot. Um, and, you know, my South, the way I define the South, and it accommodates him, embraces that. And, you know, if you want to define Southern hospitality and somebody asked me to do that, I would introduce you to Lawrence and say, you know, this is it. Um, so that that idea of telling stories, I mean, it's kind of what we do. We 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 tell stories about the American South and use food as a way of doing it. So it's oral histories. It's a podcast called Gravy, a journal called Gravy. Um,
0: Let's talk a little about the oral histories. Sure. So that's that's how I came to know the SFA, huh. and they're they're really extraordinary. The the whole project of oral history is something that. Well, I mean, nowadays I think oral history means like we called up twenty-three celebrities to ask them how it felt to shoot Clueless, you know, but like and like <laughs> you know, I mean it's it's become this sort of like stunt journalism thing where it's like, you know, Louis C.K. weighing in on how he feels about watching a movie when he was twenty-seven or something. But like but the 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 fieldwork of oral history is in many ways, I think, a vanishing art and is something that the SFA... You have, what is it, the, over a thousand
2: yeah. oral histories in you know, your right a thousand. I don't know what the exact number is, but yeah.
0: So why are oral history as the medium to record these stories?
2: One, it's less intrusive than, like, video, and it is, um, you know, if, if you're making a film, as you all well know, you shoot, you know, hundreds of hours of footage and you edit it down into something small, um, oral history is you turn on the audio recorder and you capture everything. Um, so um, the, the diversionary comment that rambles on for 15 minutes and ultimately may be the most interesting and telling thing in the conversation, you capture that, too. And it, oral history is done for posterity, not for today. Um, you know, I wouldn't compare our work to the WPA era and, and and that monumental effort in the 1930s, but the instinct is similar in that um, – you know, we listen and try to listen closely to working class folk, um, and I think that is, you know, why a strong cadre of the chef community and restaurant community supports us because we're not doing oral histories with chefs. We're not doing oral histories, you know, with um, you know the latest rock star winemaker. It's about the working class bedrock of the American South, and it is their work that chefs leverage it is their work that restaurateurs reference when they're telling their own stories in the American South and that feels like a good investment that level of documentation is really interesting
1: and valuable especially to like you know journalists because like anything that happened in the last 10 years in restaurant land across America you might be able to google it you know or any sort of food trend thing but going back I mean it's often just this big blank
2: canvas or we don't even know what it is you know A lot of people, when they talk to us about what we do, they talk about, y'all preserve Southern culture. It's like, no, we don't preserve anything. We document um, what is transpiring today and and frame what has happened past. But it's not about preserving anything. It's about documenting the evolution of a region. And that part's fascinating to me.
0: Do you think of it as fundamentally anthropological?
2: Um, It's public history. It's... it's, um, it it has roots and all that. Like so, the academic program out of which I came is a multidisciplinary program. Um, Southern Studies is, you know, I took classes in anthropology, history, English, political science. Um, and our work, at its best, reflects all those strategies for getting at the region and its people.
0: So as the South continues to evolve, and as the methods of Definition in the past with which one reckons continue to become more and more multifaceted. Do you think that it's possible that, like, the reflexivity will turn in on itself and just, like, suddenly the South will be everything? <laughs>
2: <laughs> if I have my grand plan, yes. Um, I mean That's when you can close the Southern Foodways Alliance.
0: Or expand it it into the Global Foodways Alliance. And it's just everything.
2: But we're already seeing hints of that. The kind of, you know, and I I don't want to, I don't mean to be egoist in saying this, but like the kind of, what we've honed over time. There's now Foodways Texas, and there's now the Appalachian Food Summit, and there are within the American South groups percolating up. And I, you know, there's a Midwestern Foodways Alliance. Um, there are efforts to do similar work and realize the potential of storytelling about food. Um, you know, the South is. Both a singular place and it's America writ small. So, you know, is there a moment in our future when the perspective you just offered is the way people see America? Yeah. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> I
1: love that. Good. Yeah, <laughs> we'll 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 be
2: here for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- th- there's gonna. I mean, th- uh, connected to your question is. You know, we, we are in a southern vogue moment, too, right? The south know? is very cool. Right. And um, I think what is going to come out of that, and it's probably a better answer to your question, is that the south has gained a new respect, I think, of late. Um, and southern kind of culinary expertise is just going to be regularized now. It's not going to be exotified. Um, and I think what we'll see is these southern theme restaurants that are that are less intellectually engaged will drop by the wayside. But uh, respect for southern food and the subregions of southern food will continue apace, and will just be a part of the American narrative.
1: Yeah, you know, on that note, something I thought was so strange and and interesting was like seeing like when big food, like fast food companies, sometimes adopt ideas or just, it's not even like specific culinary trends, but just like the idea of a region, regional Southern thing, like KFC has like Carolina gold fried chicken or something right. that has like a mustard sauce. And I, you know, and they've done hot chicken. They've done Nashville style hot chicken. They have. They sure have. Chicken, you they know? have.
2: Um, that's fascinating to me too, because I, there are deep roots in in that in the American South. And I think we have a tendency to ascribe fast food to something that's been visited upon the south and the reality is you know Kentucky fried chicken Colonel Sanders um
0: I mean it's right there in the name yeah. it says Kentucky <laughs> it
2: does it <laughs> says Kentucky <laughs> <laughs> that that but what Colonel Sanders did what Colonel Sanders sold he sold um a very traditional food, fried chicken, a very rural food. And he repackaged it for urbanizing, um, suburbanizing Southerners, and ultimately urbanizing, suburbanizing Americans. He sold something very Southern grounded in place, repackaged it and resold it. Um, you know, I, I don't know if Colonel Sanders certainly isn't my um, inspiration for my work, but I find the conceit of his sale pretty darn interesting.
0: <laughs> so people, people in who are outside of the South, the the trend makers and king makers of the food world keep talking about what's going to be the new South. Right? Are
2: all those people outside the South?
0: I, well, I, I don't know. You tell me.
2: <laughs> are they? I'm picking on you.
0: because <laughs> I think I mean, but genuinely, I mean, I think that like you know, you were saying the South is so hot right now. Right. Like everyone outside the South is like the South is so cool. And the the implication of that, which is often just explicitly stated, is something else will be cool next. Yeah. Is it gonna be like New England seafood shacks or the Pacific so. Northwest and like but it never really actually seems to get there. The South is
2: well, the South has kind of been cyclically hip for a long time. You know, the, the 1960s fascination with soul food is a fascination with foods of urban African, urbanized African-Americans who leave the South, end up in Chicago, Detroit, places like that. Um, 1976, Jimmy Carter's elected. You know, grits and Fritz is the joke um, and the, un, the informal slogan of the Carter campaign. 1980s, Paul Prudhomme, everybody falls for Cajun cooking. Um, by the 90s, it's you know Anson Mills and the Grain Revolution led out of a Columbia, South Carolina car wash. 2000s, it's Sean Brock and Low Country Revival Cooking. Um, every 10 years, America has kind of rediscovered the South, fallen in love with it, um, and exalted it. Um, and I wonder if this next iteration, won't be a rediscovery of the South, will be a new respect for American regional cooking in general, and the South will be a part of that narrative. But I hope that, you know, the stirrings of kind of um, Midwestern cuisine as a Renaissance cuisine, or New England as a Renaissance cuisine, you know, you see moments in American history where that has happened previously. You think about Jasper White and folks like that in the Northeast. Um, I, I hope that's what's next.
0: Do you think that it requires a strong personality at the center? Like when you were just giving us that kind of back-of-the-envelope history of the way Southern mm-hmm. food has expanded, almost everybody had a name attached to, to that. Right. Um, I don't know. Is this sort of the that's great man question. theory of yeah. how food trends move?
2: Um, that's kind of depressing, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's a great woman in there too, perhaps. Yeah, that
0: would be nice someday. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that having one figure, you know, like if we were to talk about like California cuisine or something, you know, mm-hmm. immediately I would think of Alice Waters or Wolfgang Pock or something like that. Right. Like,
0: well, It's helpful to have a charismatic person at the center to tell you what does. to care about.
2: I mean, I think about that in writing this book. You know, there, there are figures, central figures in each one of the chapters. They are not um, as traditionally defined, for the most part, chefs as we might think about them today, but they're. People like um, Fannie Lou Hamer, the voting rights activist who emerges as an agricultural activist. You know, it is economical to tell the story of the move from, um, from voting rights to economic parity arguments through Fannie Lou Hamer's life. I mean, That's an economical storytelling mechanism.
0: And then how does that connect back to food?
2: How does that connect?
0: I mean, I to guess that? everything. I'm, I'm setting you up here. I'm
2: softballing you. That's okay. <laughs> so, but you have to be softer with me. Okay.
0: <laughs> How does everything come back to food, Johnsy?
2: <laughs> um, food is power. Um, access to food for those who are impoverished um, is want for power. Um, food sustains us. Um, food is one of our greatest cultural expressions, In every facet of our lives, we struggle to gain access. um, We interpret by way of cooking, and we argue about the righteousness of food. It is um, endlessly fascinating to me, not because I'm looking for the next great noodle bowl, but because thinking and writing and talking about food offers us access to thinking about racism and class difference and gender and ethnic identity, all these things that vex us. If you choose to think and write about food, you gain access to those issues.
0: I'm just going to we should just transcribe that, and that's our new response yeah. <laughs> to all of the Facebook commenters who are constantly right. like, "Eater, stick to food," and we're like, "We are, right. we yeah. are sticking right. to food." It's just there's more to it than what goes in your mouth.
2: We're actually, you know, we're actually doing right by food, and 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 by the people who produce it and consume it, like. We increase you know, by way of focusing deeply on food and digging deep like y'all do, you increase our appreciation for the food. It doesn't tamp it down. It doesn't lessen it. it 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 um escalates it so here's a question I
1: have about um, you know, southern restaurants right now in the southern dining scene. Do you think that it is a place mm-hmm. right now? like um are there any cities, are there any hubs or any restaurants where, Young chefs out of X culinary school from X part of the world are like, I am going to go to this place. I'm going to live there to learn this. Like, are there is there that kind of like you know, immigration,
0: like a pilgrimage culture? Yeah, just because so much. Yeah,
2: yeah
1: they're, they're, that's happening. And, and
2: where whereabouts? I mean, that's happening in three primary cities in the south. That's happening in New Orleans. Um, that's happening in Nashville. And that's happening in Charleston. Um, you know, and those are the most media-ready cities. Those are the chefs with the most marquee. I mean, those are the cities with the most marquee chefs. Um, those are the places that, if you are a young chef, you find the idol of your dreams. <laughs> I'm not saying that's necessarily the way to go. I'm just saying those are the cities that, right. that, that you can that choose from a list of idols
1: mind. if you want. And uh, and
2: you also, I mean, those cities also. What makes those cities great? dining destinations, is there is great food at every end of the spectrum. So you go to Charleston, there's Bertha's, which is in North Charleston. It's the the opening scene of my book is in Bertha's in North Charleston. Beautiful red rice, pork chops, fried whiting, collards, okra soup. Um, A beautiful $10 lunch awaits you and on the other end of the spectrum, there's, um, you know, there's Michaelotta's Restaurant Fig and Jason Stanhope's Restaurant Fig, um, where some of the same ingredients um, are displayed in different sorts of ways. But the the complement between those two places, between Bertha's and Fig, makes Charleston a beautiful restaurant city. And and you're missing Charleston if you only go to Fig.
0: That does seem entirely dependent on access to thoughtful, relatively local product, too, which might be part of why the South is the South in this sort of culinary landscape we're playing out.
2: relatively now. rural place compared with access to farmland. I mean, we come back to, you know, the farm and, you know, the fact that they quit the Haight-Ashbury to go not far from where, you know, um, Arnold's is today.
0: Well, rural, but also with a diversity of... Crops and products. I mean, you could. the Midwest is extraordinarily rural, but you're going to drive for 60 miles straight and see nothing but soybeans.
2: Right. And you see in the South um, a long growing season too that accommodates so many crops and, and means, you know, I've got greens, collard greens uh, or turnips or, you know, I've got access to those 10 months out of the year. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the South is just sort of better been anywhere is that I what know, we're going wouldn't with say. This? i mean
2: you come back you remember, <laughs> remember we, we screwed up some things there, there were there were these guys named like george wallace and lester maddox yeah um yeah. you know we we've had our share of um a couple of missteps yeah but you know i want to face down those missteps um i'm proud of my place and i can be angry with my place at the same time I, you know i hope i'm a
1: complicated boy. I'm just curious, John T., how you feel about the fetish- fetishization of uh, ramps every spring in the Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed well, to no, say? No, I'm just. Do you think it's a cool thing that uh, everyone's into it, or do you think it's like uh, a little ridiculous? Are ramps southern? I think of ramps as like kind of Appalachian-ish. I always thought they were from the just, state just, they grew wild in the south, but maybe that was just a mis a misconception I had.
2: I mean, yeah, I, I've I have never been, but I've almost been, and I'm going to do it this year. is Alan Benton has invited me to go ramp hunting with him, um, in the hills outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. He lives in Madisonville, Tennessee. Um, so that's something that I want to do quite soon. Um, um, so it is very much a part of his Appalachian upbringing, um, for Alan Benton, the kind of Master Ham and Bacon cure of, of mm-hmm. Tennessee.
0: The kindest man in the history of the universe.
2: Um, indeed.
0: is so nice.
2: He is nice. And it's, it's, it's an honest response to other humans that is so... The calming. It's really just incredibly soothing. We both got calm, like talking about <laughs> yeah. it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm
1: calm. B- feeling all of a sudden calm. Just thinking about ramp hunting with <laughs> Alan Benton. This is now oh, a,
0: man. a meditation podcast where we just say Alan Ra- Benton. Wrap some of that p- hand We
2: can say Alan Benton. Uh, Alan yeah, Benton.
1: Alan Benton. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, yeah, but well, not just ramps, too. I mean, the fetishization of. Ramps, are, I guess, are so extreme everyone loses their fucking mind over ramps.
2: They do. And it, it seems it, – it, I don't know. It, it also seems a more charged food because it very much is the kind of – I'm going to hike back in the woods and, and harvest ramps. Um, it's a very much a food like going sang hunting, ginseng hunting. It's a food rooted in working class – um, rural knowledge wherein you know that food, that thing they extract from the hills gets stepped on four times and ends up in New York and is X amount of dollars and it's hard to connect the commerce and that kind of riles us I think is part of the reason ramps might rankle mm-hmm. <laughs> in addition to that great opportunity for alliteration. Ramps yeah. <laughs> rankle.
1: Franklin ramps. Yeah I think I remember seeing them at the height of like <laughs> you know spring ramp mania like um Two years ago, there were like $20 a pound at the Union Square Green Market right. or something like that. And it was just like, right.
0: oh, a pound of ramps is a lot, though I should not defend that price. It's obscene. <laughs> Let's talk a little about the notion of carpetbaggers, which is—
2: It's not a term I use. No, why not? Because it presumes that you're still caught up in Civil War dialogues. I mean, it's just not a—it's um, its not a cabinet of words and to which I reach or care to reach.
0: A lot of other people still use the term carpetbagger.
2: Fine for them. I don't have to.
0: To describe this phenomenon that I think we've been kind of walking around in in a lot of our conversation of folks kind of showing up in the South and claiming it as their own.
2: You know, I welcome new arrivals. This notion of the South as some place that I'm defending um, from the great barbarians who stand outside the gate of the South. It really is. I mean, if you break it down, it's rooted in kind of old Civil War diatribes, old Civil War fights. It's a North versus South. It's a Yankee versus Confederate, and I won't have it.
0: Okay, well, that kind of undermines my next <laughs> question. I'm at a loss. Okay, Can I, I went, too to I'm no, it's it's went too it's hard. I'm sorry, Helen. No, it's great. It's fine. I'm just going to cry in the corner. It's totally No, oh, no, it's cool. so funny. You know what
1: this is making me think of? Okay, so I went to I went to
2: college in New... It gets me really wound up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's why we're this here. Is, what else what gets you mad? About. Let's
0: go on to that. Um, what's what, what's getting you pissed lately? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> who do you, who do you want to shout out?
2: No, I'm not angry. I'm angry at ideas, not people. You know, I'm angry at at, at um, frames that aren't useful.
0: How does your anger evolve?
2: And it's not really anger. It's 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 education. It's acknowledgement. It's recognition that we fall into patterns of conversation about the South that don't serve the region well, and yet we fall into them. And it's my job to be a close listener and go, "Uh uh-uh.
0: Well, earlier in our conversation, you you mentioned that you kind of came to Southern food because you were interested in exploring Southern racism. But- Later on, your eyes were open to notions of classism or gender yeah. inequity. So clearly, this is a thing, and I think you know this is the case with anybody who right. experiences an eye opening, and then your eyes—it turns out they could open so much wider. Like, what is the path for that evolution for you?
2: I mean, for me, it, it, it really has been kind of building blocks. It's been first racism and its imprint on the region. Um, class came next, and came by way of. Someone like Will Campbell, who was a great example to me, is and and you know and and then comes gender by way of um, my great friend Ronnie Lundy in my ear, um, talking to me about both class and gender, um, and then then comes ethnicity and identity um, as you as you face down the demographic destiny of my American South and our America, um, if you choose to see new arrivals as threats, um, things aren't going to go so well for you.
0: We got to my question. This is perfect. (laughs) You got where I was going.
2: Um, I mean, you know, I I think about this and I've been trying out this idea. I've actually got an Oxford American piece that I've been puzzling through. It's like, so I'm a passive Southerner. I was born in the South. It, It was given to me with all the weights associated with it. And I'm fascinated by active Southerners who claim this place, who move here from Vietnam, who move here from Mexico, who see value in the South in a way I didn't even see and come to contribute, to raise families, to to establish businesses, to grow their livelihoods, to claim this place as active participants in the South. Like, who's going to shut them out? Like, you know, why well, do we- Currently
0: w- the federal government.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. But, but I'm not paying Touche. as much attention to them as perhaps I am to the two of y'all in the studio. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I mean it's it's those those purposeful Southerners that you met, that you talk about in the book of the the hippies coming from from mm-hmm. are like you can choose the place. So what does it take to be a person of the South? Do you just have to show up?
2: Yeah, you have to show up and be respectful. You don't have to do anything. And I don't like that terminology. Forgive me for using it. To be a person of the South and I like that phrase. Um, you want to belong. You recognize the failings and see possibilities in the future. Um, you're respectful of the place, curious about the place. Um, don't come in with preconceived notions, but you do come in with a want to understand. Um, and I see that happening every day. You know, I think about somebody like Francis Lamb, you know, who is on the Southern Foodways Alliance board, a nice New Jersey-born boy. Um, you know, has found ways to contribute to the region of my birth that are beautiful. And, you know, uh, he jokes, you know, like you made me an honorary Southerner. It's like, no, you claim this place. You did it yourself.
0: <laughs> Do you think the notion of an honorary Southerner is a real thing?
2: I don't like it either. I mean, I, I, you know, that that notion of honorary Southerner just just— it sounds again it sounds almost like you're like colonel sanders was an honorary colonel Right. Um, right. you know it, i don't like the modifier not a real colonel not not a real southerner right and, and in that case he wasn't a real colonel and he bleached his goatee and there's a whole bunch to be that but um
0: is real man <laughs> <laughs> well john t we have come to the portion of the show called the lightning round Uh-oh. where greg and i ask you some questions and you can answer them however you want.
1: Yes, so so just tell us how you feel. John T. Lightning round question number one: You are at an airport with an hour to kill, and you have money in your wallet. What do you do with that time? How do you spend it? Answering email on my laptop.
2: So you, you're very All proactive right. about using that time. <laughs> yeah, you're not. You're not going to use I mean, it. I don't. I don't find joy in airports. I mean, I no. don't. I. I, I mean, the, the, I love to. Drink. I love a great bar. I love bars in this fine city, but I don't find the airport diversion that entertaining. Um, I would probably buy, you know, a, a magazine that I don't normally sub- that I, I would buy a magazine that I don't subscribe to, perhaps with that money. But I don't see potential joy in airport, especially since Dwayne Nutter left. One flew south in the Atlanta airport, which and Tiffany Barrier left. One flew south in the Atlanta airport. That's the one place where I would have plunked down my money where I've missed a flight before because I was having so much fun at that restaurant. But they've left. It's not what it was. It's missed a flight, man. To- that's that's that must have been someplace. It's, 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 it really was. Did either one of y'all ever go there when they were working? I did not. I, I went in there one time when Tiffany Barrier was behind the bar, and there were people greeting her, and she was greeting them. They were regulars, and there were regulars who were commuters from all across the world, but they came back to see her. And that bar just shined. Um, there's something very magical about that amazing
0: it should be like a movie or a TV yes, show yes it's the so next great no cheers. place and
2: making it in some place
0: yeah. yeah like global it's like cheers. wings meets yeah. cheers kind of meets oh my <laughs> god women. I don't it's know. so good it's, it's good yeah just in the south oh my god wings meets cheers there's got to be some TV producers listening to this. <laughs> right. Make it
1: happen. Uh, you can reach us That's at upsell ingenious. at eater.com. We'll sell the rights to to you. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Right. <laughs> and
0: you're gonna get cut. We gotta get a cut. Okay. Yeah, no, we're all in this together. All right, good. <laughs> okay. Negative lightning round question. Any person living or dead in the entire history of humanity will speak at the Southern Foodways Alliance conference symposium. I will speak. Who would it be? How Damn. has no one asked you this before? You it's seem good. very I've stumped. Been, I've been asked
2: the kind of dinner party question <laughs> before, but not like living or dead speak at the SFA conference. Um, there was one time when Sean Brock gave a talk, and he was tr- he was in some ways kind of personifying Thomas Jefferson, and I thought, you know, that's kind of an answer, but no. I, mean, I would say Zorney or Hurston. Okay. Um, Barnard-trained anthropologist, documenter of black and white folk life in the American South.
0: She's from Orlando, right? Uh, or right outside Winter of Orlando. Yeah. yeah,
2: right outside of Orlando. Um, you know, she reported from turpentine camps she wrote this amazing novel their eyes were watching god um, where there's this line about like a friday night there um, she described as hot grease popping in happy houses (laughs) like i just love that phrase Um, but she understood the value and power and importance of food in her writing and i would love to hear, hear her give a talk okay okay
1: lightning round question what is the most surprising meal you've had in the last year?
2: Um hmm. surprise yeah, caught you off guard. Um there's a new cracker barrel owned <laughs> concept um uh called holler and dash that is like Cracker Barrel two point seven five six. Uh, what like
0: hipster Cracker Barrel? oh
2: uh-huh. It is. It is. I've not and, even and heard of it. I this. don't think Cracker Barrel claims it that way, but it is the money behind Cracker Barrel and the enterprise behind Cracker Barrel. There's one of them in Birmingham, and there's one of them in Nashville. Oh man, um, we got to get on this. And, we got to get on this. Yeah, yeah. it's really. I'm, I'm giving away. It's something I've been wanting to write about, but I'm, I'm. You know, I'm giving it away to the to my. Colleagues in Thievery, y'all have at it. It's, right. it's fascinating because... Um, I'm actually, looking
0: it up right now. I really
2: actually enjoyed it. Um, and it they use all the signals of the food moment in which we are in now. There's Mexican Coke. There's um, their mason jar light fixtures. Um, it's fast, casual counter service. Wow. Um, there's a fried pork tenderloin biscuit with like blueberry... Um, jelly on it, which sounds weird, but is really country. Like, you know, that idea of ordering a sausage biscuit or something like that and then getting your little, you know, those little plastic...
0: Little jam plastic, packet?
2: Yeah. And smearing that all over your sausage biscuit, like, that's country boy food. Um, so did it, like, work on its own terms? Um, I mean, it is it is a very interesting place to me. Um, it's a fascinating place to me. You're kind of future tense... Merchandising of the South. Um,
0: I'm looking at their menu right now, and they have this whole amazing biscuit menu, like stuff you can get on a biscuit. And then it says in small type. Yeah, if you want a lighter option instead of a biscuit, you can have all this stuff on a bed of kale.
2: Perfect. And there's kale tucked inside of a ham biscuit, too. Um, Oh, yeah, the (laughs)
0: Hamabama, country ham, red-eye aioli. Uh, Right. Kale and apple butter. Which sounds
2: like they borrowed that from the Chang. Yeah, I was going to say, does Chang Dave Chang know, know about <laughs> the red eye aioli? Because
0: he actually talked about not is, calling that aioli. It's um, momofuku Fuku out the ioli.
1: Ioli. He talked about it on this podcast. Yeah. He said he decided to call it gravy because nobody would want right. red
2: eye aioli. This is, this it's is fascinating. The, it's interesting. Um, yeah, it really It's really interesting. Wow, this one's my okay, well, is there goes the rest of my, my afternoon. Mind. There. Um,
0: there a thing where they're like, they're now hiring, they're like, we're hiring the salt of the earth. Yeah. That's their jobs. This is the- you're, it's this is the,
2: the, the tropes of the South. The pure
0: distillation of the South as All
2: a All your work,
1: John. Right. All your work inspired this restaurant.
2: No, uh, Just kidding. I'm gonna come
0: after you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Let's move on to the next lightning yeah. round question. <laughs> <Next> <laughs> these question. are supposed to be
2: fast right not well, what I've done no okay. it's like
0: very slow moving lightning we need to rename it the molasses round or something like that okay this is a fast one tan suit or seersucker tan suit yeah
2: I'm wearing seersucker right now but I don't wear want to wear a seersucker suit a seersucker blazer is okay to buy me seersucker suits like you're selling like ice cream like ice cream what selling what if it's like really car. well cut pardon me
0: what if it's like really well cut like super sharp if it's well fitting seersucker poor fitting khaki Okay, sucker. All right. Okay, John T., you're gunning down
1: the highway in a convertible, and you're singing along, you're blasting some tune, you're singing along to it. What
2: is it? <laughs> um, I love this band called Lee Baines and the Glory Fires. Um, he has an album called De reconstruction He is a son of the South like me. He's from... Birmingham, Alabama. Um, it's like an evisceration of the South and a celebration of the South all at once, and it's almost punk. It's so hard. Um, I really like that band. I like what he says. Also, like on the goofier side, the Derailers do this really great cover of "Gin and Juice" by Snoop Dogg. I really <laughs> love that song for driving.
0: That must be one of the most covered songs of all time.
2: The Derailers version is really good. Excellent.
0: Um, what are three really good names for a puppy?
2: Well, we have a puppy, and she's named Lurleen Wallace, the first um, female governor of the state of Alabama. Um, I've always wanted to name a dog Pulpwood because I just love the power in that name. Pupwood. All right. Um, I grew up in an area where people cut pulp, cut trees. Um, so a third name, a third name. Um, hmm. How about potlicker?
0: Ooh. <laughs> All right. I mean, I don't know how we can move on. That's a perfect close
2: for yeah. the episode. Yeah.
0: Everyone name your dog Potlicker. It's a great friggin' name for a dog because it becomes a verb.
2: And <laughs> my wife, I was out on tour, and Blair sent me a picture of our dog, Lurling Wallace, who was outside um, along, like sprawled alongside the walk in which Blair had cooked. Eggs for breakfast, and Lurleen had licked the wok clean, and just was collapsed there. Um, She's a pot that's, licker. that's a, yeah. that's a nice image. Pot. She's a wok I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, Blair's now convinced that no one will ever eat at our home again because I put it on Twitter. It's like, no, no, no. Everybody does that.
0: No, my dog literally climbs into the dishwasher, <laughs> and that's how she, you lick, clean your she dog? licks off every single dish. Like as we're loading the dishwasher, she'll climb up onto it. That's what dogs do. They're our friends.
2: I just remember that it's not the derailers who did Gin and Juice. It's the... Uh, who are the dudes from Austin? Um, oh,
0: crap. We can fire up the old Google.
2: Yeah, it's... it's um,
0: The dudes from Austin. Kind of goofy.
2: Yeah, just... Uh, gin and juice cover and you'd find the gourds the The gourds Gourds, exactly it is the gourds who do a righteous cover of gin and juice alright
0: well John T. Edge thank you so much for joining us here on the Eater Upsell Um, the Potlicker Papers A Food History of the Modern South is available wherever books are sold it is and where can our listeners find you and the Southern Foodways Alliance if they want to find out more
2: um, my website for this book itself is Um Southern Foodways is southernfoodways.org. Listen to us on Gravy, the podcast as well. Shout out to podcast. Gravy, yeah. We, and,
0: you know, big fan. Our bros out there on the Apple Podcast Store and other fine places where podcasts are sold. Though they're all given away for free. Anyway, yay. John T. Edge, thank you so much for joining thank us y'all. here.
1: If you like what you heard on the show today, please subscribe to the Eater Upsell and you can hear one of these episodes every Monday. And uh, if you want to hear more of us talking about food in the South and talking to a Southern gentleman, just head back one week in the archives to our conversation with Sean Brock. And next week, stay tuned for our chat with the one and only Mr. Danny Meyer, Mr. Shake Shack, Mr. Grammar's Tavern and Union Square Cafe. He's going to talk about his amazing three-decade career. And what's up next? All right, now let's let those sweet, sweet credits roll.
0: The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Gianone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear Lister, you. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.